Hello and welcome to the Ranking the Albums podcast, the podcast in which I rank the albums of great artists and bands from worst to best. This time I'm discussing The Velvet Underground, arguably the first and certainly one of the most influential alternative rock bands. This reputation was gained retrospectively over time, and their brilliance was barely recognised at the time of the band's lifespan. A quote often attributed to Brian Eno is that the first Velvet Underground album only sold 10,000 copies, but everyone who bought it formed a band. And there are few bands as influential to punk, post-punk, indie and alternative rock. Formed in New York City in the mid-1960s by jingle writer Lou Reed and Welsh classical music scholar John Cale, the pair were more like-minded than this description suggests. Both were drawn to avant-garde art. Cale would play droning viola, and Reed would play guitar in wildly different tunings. Their mission was to synthesise rock and roll and the avant-garde, and Reed particularly wanted to write unvarnished truths about seedy characters and their bleak, urban environment. What I wanted to do, Reed recalled, was write rock and roll that you could listen to as you got older, and it wouldn't lose anything. It would be timeless in the subject matter and the literacy of the lyrics. After a succession of short-lived garage bands, Sterling Morrison joined, joined the pair on rhythm guitar. His melodic country and western and rockabilly-inspired lines provided a much-needed reassuring counterpoint to Cale and Reed's musical vision. Morrison supposedly found Michael Lee's book, The Velvet Underground in the Street, a book which reports on taboo sexual practices, and thus the band were named. Despite some reluctance from Cale, Mo Tucker joined the band on drums. She played with no cymbals, playing only tom-toms with mallets while standing. Tucker was a blunt, unorthodox, but very effective drummer, inspired by Bo Diddley. The band met Andy Warhol in 1965, who became the band's manager. This was quite a loose arrangement, but his patronage gave them a platform to record and to tour, with his colourful film projections displaying on the band while they played live. It was Warhol who insisted the German model and Chantos Nico sing on some of the band's songs, and this was enough to gain her credit on the band's debut. The Velvet Underground and Nico, which is adorned with Andy Warhol's signature and his iconic banana illustration. Never a perfect fit for the band. Nico is brutally effective on the song she appears on. She would soon leave the band, even if her association with the Velvets would continue. Cale and Reed would write songs for her debut record, Chelsea Girl, and Cale would produce The Marble Index and Desert Shore. The variety, melody and sweetness of their debut record recorded in 1966, but released in 1967, was quickly jettisoned, as was uh, Andy Warhol as manager for their second record, White Light, White Heat, released in 1967. It's their loudest, most uncompromising record, a true proto-punk record. With Cale's avant-garde tendencies clashing with Reed's attempt to make the band more accessible, Reed sacked Cale in 1968, giving Morrison and Tucker a choice of him or me. Morrison reluctantly relayed news of the sacking to Cale. Cale was replaced by the more impressionable Doug Yule, a more willing and conventional multi-instrumentalist, bass player and keyboardist who could sing reasonably well too. After touring, the band recorded their third record and their second self-titled album, The Velvet Underground, in late 1968. Tonally a more tender, much less abrasive record, Reed's lyrics are a lot more personal, the record was a radical break from the band's previous work, but was equally as unsuccessful commercially. For their first three records, the Velvets were on the Verve record label, 
normally a label for jazz musicians, which was owned by the much larger MGM company. A fourth album's worth of material was recorded throughout 1969, but that went unreleased at the time, until the 1980s. Verve was sceptical about the band's commercial appeal after three records, and the band were sceptical about the label's willingness to properly market their outputs. So they eventually signed for Atlantic Records, home of Led Zeppelin, for their next record, Loaded, for which the raison d'etre was to write an album loaded with hits. After falling out with their manager Steve Sesnick, Reed left the band, had a breakdown and moved back in with his parents in Long Island before the release of Loaded in 1970. His departure was one of the reasons which prevented the album from being a success. Now, Reed finally did achieve mainstream success in 1972 with the release of the singles Walk on the Wild Side and Satellite of Love and the LP Transformer, which came about at the behest of David Bowie. But by this point, the Velvet Underground only consisted of Doug Yule, with founding members Morrison and then Tucker leaving the band uh, soon after Reed. Still contracted to Atlantic, Sesnick encouraged Yule to produce another Velvet album. The much maligned Squeeze was released in 1973, um, its inevitable commercial failure led to the band's long overdue disbandment. Reed and Kale collaborated on the 1990 tribute album to Andy Warhol, Songs for Dreller, and they briefly reunited the Velvet Underground with Morrison and Tucker for a series of concerts in 1993. Reed and Kale fell out again before any new material could be recorded, and Morrison's death in 1995 put pay to the notion of another Velvet Underground album. Now, each of the Velvet's albums has a very distinct musical personality. But if you were to characterise their albums, you'd place their experimental first two records with Kale together, and their later work, the two relatively conventional albums with Doug Yule together. Then their final record, Squeeze, is is Vuino, Velvet Underground in name only. Unsurprisingly, that's the album I start my rankings with. So at number five, we have Squeeze, released in 1973. It clocks in at a merciful but no less punishing 33 minutes. With its pinball wizard-esque opening acoustic strum, Little Jack starts well enough until a clumsy shift to Doug Yule's awkward attempt at Lou Reed's street smart sing-speak. It's corny, it's bad, there's terrible toot-toot backing vocals. Um, Crash, the second track, which resembles Lou Reed's New York telephone conversation released on Transformer. By the track Dopey Joe, it's clear that Yule just doesn't have the songwriting chops to write songs that are memorable. And there's little to differentiate between the cutesy Caroline and then the fairly tame mean old man. If there's anything positive to say about this album, well, the drums are warmly produced and they're played well, albeit unenthusiastically, by Ian Pace, uh, the drummer from Deep Purple. And with the exception of sax, the rest of the instruments are played by Doug Yule. And he can literally play the instruments competently, he still manages to play them badly though. <laughs> There's plodding bass, rushed guitar licks with no bite, dire lyrics that have all the wholesomeness of Jonathan Richmond but none of the charm. He can't seem to decide whether to take his songwriting in a more country direction or, or maintain continuity with the Velvet's rock and roll past. The ballad Friends, while not great, is the pick of the litter, with folky arpeggios and a brittle vocal. It sounds a bit like a big star song, which fits Doug Yule's style better. Send No Letter is perhaps the album's nadir, while Closer Louise threatens an epic climax before limping out forgettably. Now, some critics apologetically, wincingly say this record is not that bad, but 
with respect, that's absolute horseshit. It's a stain on the great band's legacy. Yule had a positive moderating influence on Reed and the band after he replaced John Cale. It's a pity he couldn't apply that moderating influence to himself. Squeeze is a rushed, opportunistic exercise to cash in on the interest people had in the Velvets as Lou Reed established himself as a solo artist and David Bowie name-checked the band as, as an influence on Ziggy Stardust. But the whole album is so shameless it's actually impressive. The album cover, which depicts a phallic Empire State Building gripped by a hand, is a horrific visual pun, considering the album's name. But it's not even the worst thing about the record. Around this time, Lou Reed was asked, Where's Doug Yule? And he replied, Dead, I hope. At number four, perhaps controversially, I'm going with The Velvet's second record, White Light, White Heat, released in 1968. If their debut record had moments of sweetness and melody amongst the sleaze and noise, their second record embraced the chaos and experimentalism that made their debut so revolutionary. After severing their relationship with Warhol and Nico, the band had free reign, although the record has a fair amount of continuity with its predecessor. The title track effectively repeats the trick of waiting for the man. At just over two minutes, it's a relentless rush deliberately evocative of the sensation of taking amphetamines. Cale and Morrison's infectious backing vocals give the song its hook and its giddy momentum. It's true there's an element of repeating the tricks of the first record here, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. It's a similar relationship that The Kinks' All Day and All of the Night has to You Really Got Me. It's a sequel of the If It Ain't Broke Don't Fix It kind. It's a thrilling opener and it's filled with fat, fuzzy, short-circuiting bass, even as the song disintegrates. John Cale takes lead vocals to narrate the second track, The Gift, an eccentric, dark-humoured short story told over a tight, repetitive R&B groove. And the bridge version of The Gift might go like this. Waldo Jeffers, a jealous boyfriend who posts himself to his girlfriend via the US mail. His girlfriend chops open the package with scissors, killing Waldo instantly. At eight minutes long, no matter how blackly humorous the tale, it takes the momentum out of the record. The bloody risque subject matter continues on the third track, Lady Godiva's Operation, which John Cale also monotones lead vocals on. It seems to concern sexual reassignment surgery or a lobotomy that doesn't entirely go to plan. The final track on side A, Here She Comes Now, is a misnomer on this record, dreamily gliding in with Kale's pretty viola playing. Even Lou Reed's lyric, Ah, she looks so good. Ah, she's made out of wood. Doesn't spoil it. It's actually my favourite and most listened to track on this record. And like the title track, it benefits from its melody, brevity and its continuity with the sounds of the first record. White Light, White Heat as a record certainly solidified the Velvet's reputation as badass noise merchants, and is comparable with the Stooges' funhouse in that it's testing and challenging dirty rock and roll, which gets even more depraved as the running time wears on. I Heard Her Call It My Name, the lead track on side two, resembles an all-out oral assault, rather than a coherent song. Its lyrics and tunes secondary to Reed's blistering guitar soloing. The 17-minute closer Sister Ray ostensibly about a drag queen performing fellatio, features Kale's screeching, swirling vox organ, 
and Reed's clanging three-chord rhythm is relentlessly uncompromising and a legendary track in its own right, but I do tend to zone out and lose focus over the 17 minutes. As an improvised jam, it feels a little lacking in structure at certain points. I find this record's self-consciously challenging quality is its most distinctive quality, but it's also the thing that keeps me from really enjoying it. It's hard to argue that this represents the very best of Reed's songwriting, even if his cast of characters are more debauched and depraved than even on his first record. It's quite an uneven record that feels a little rushed and lacking in the winsome charm that offset the band's darker moments on their stronger records. It was only recorded in a few days too, and it shows during Sister Ray, the recording engineer Gary Kelgren supposedly walked out in disgust. These factors and the band's desire to make such a nasty, over-distorted record inevitably affected the quality of the recordings. They're compressed and lacking in warmth. The fact that my two favourite songs of this record that I return to are the title track and Here She Comes Now, they only comprise four minutes of the record's 40-minute runtime, or 10% of it. And that's how I justify placing this album as their second worst, or their worst in their kind of classic lineup. It's undoubtedly, an, it's undoubtedly an influential album, and maybe it succeeds on its own terms, but it's not an entirely enjoyable one to my mind. In third place is Loaded, released in 1970. The band's move to Atlantic Records came with newfound commercial expectations. So Reed proposed to make an album loaded full of hits. Suffice to say, there weren't any hits, but in Sweet Jane and Rock and Roll, Reed wrote two of the band's most enduring and radio-friendly tracks. And the whole album is the Velvet's most palatable and traditional. And I mean that as a compliment, even if that inevitably meant sacrificing their edge. Part of that was forced by personnel changes. Although credited on the sleeve, Mo Tucker went on maternity leave for this record which allows for more supple, conventional drumming from session musicians and, er, uh, Doug Yule's brother, Bill. With Sterling Morrison attending college at this time, his contributions were rather sparing. As with their third record, the lineup changes affected the dynamic of the group, and this time it's effectively a Lou Reed and Doug Yule project. Doug Yule sings lead vocals on four tracks, including the album opener, Who Loves the Sun? On that track, the sunny, winsome vocal and harmonies hide the bittersweet cynicism of Reed's lyrics. To the question, who loves the sun, comes the wry rejoinder, not everyone. Sweet Jane's three-chord progression is much imitated. But my favourite part of the song is the disorientating, oriental-sounding opening. I've got no idea how it was achieved, probably with some delay and guitar effects pedals, but it's easily the most adventurous moment on the record, and a reminder of the Velvet's ability to craft novel sounds. The track itself is, is one of the few big Velvet's tracks I find a little overrated, but it's still enjoyable with its scratchy acoustic guitars, strained harmonies and trash can drums. Far superior is the album highlight Rock and Roll, a joyful tune that has its own special breezy momentum. It tells the tale of Jenny, a five-year-old who turns on the radio to find her life was saved by rock and roll. Perhaps containing Reed's most jubilant vocal, the charm of this track is its conviction that rock and roll represents something life-affirming. Reed admitted Jenny's experience were the same as his as a child. After rock and roll's euphoric but messy climax, in a great bit of sequencing, the record goes straight into the laid-back groove of Cool It Down. With honky-tonk swagger, it's the story about a man looking for Miss Linda Lee, 
who, since she has the power to love him by the hour, is presumably a prostitute. Yule sings Saide's Close a New Age, which starts intriguingly enough, but its creepy lyrics of a man making a romantic ploy to an older actress, who's later discarded as being over the hill, feels a little off. Again, Yule's innocent voice masks Reed's subversion. Musically, New Age follows a similar structure to the then-unreleased track Ocean, which was, was actually recorded for the Loaded Sessions, but discarded in favour of this song. But for me, Ocean is a far superior song, and New Age doesn't satisfy enough lyrically for its expansive arrangement. Side B doesn't start promisingly, Head Held High is not a great song, but it is a tough rocker with a gutsy vocal from Reed in the vein of beginning to see the light. Lonesome Cowboy Bill is the closest the Velvets came to a full-on country hoedown, and Doug Yule just about carries the Hank Williams-esque yodeling vocals. The album clicks back into gear with its tenderest moment, the gorgeous ballad, I Found a Reason. This track is about as philosophical as Do Wop gets. Unsurprisingly, the lyrics fit better with the previous record's themes of redemption and self-actualization. But also with rock and roll's theme of finding something, or in this case, someone life-affirming. The penultimate track, Train Round the Bend, has a stomping rhythm, shimmering guitar effects, and city-loving, country-bashing lyrics. It's supposedly a barbed answer song to Creedence Clearwater Revival's Up Around the Bend, which prefers the country life, where the neons turn to wood. It foreshadows Leonard Skinner's spat with Neil Young a little later in the 70s, but there was no such rivalry between CCR and the VU. That's presumably because John Fogerty hadn't heard of Lou Reed at the time, but to be fair, no one had. The triumphant seven-minute close at Oh Sweet Nothing I think rescues Side B's varying quality. Another three-chord special, it starts with a laid-back sleepy swing and builds to an exciting crescendo. The song tells of several characters who have nothing at all, are homeless and struggling. It echoes Bob Dylan's line from Like a Rolling Stone, when you ain't got nothing, you ain't got nothing to lose. Except in typical Reed fashion, his song comes across as an ironic, nihilistic celebration of having nothing. Overall, Loaded is most enjoyable for its warm, mellow, summery sound. Despite the pressure to produce hits, Reed's songs on this record are charming, dark, but light-sounding, full of unexpected turns and pleasantly weird, rather than inanely commercial. Aside from not actually producing any hits, it's a bit of an overstatement to say the record was loaded with them. In no world is Lonesome Cowboy Bill a hit. Thematically, the occasional random country flirtations jar a little with the down-and-out characters of the city, the outtake Ride Into the Sun, which is about struggling with city life, actually fits with this record better than, say, New Age or Head Held High. With Loaded, the band made a very accomplished, tasteful, and at times uplifting classic rock record. With, with Reed leaving the band by the time of its release, Loaded also has a pleasing sense of a band coming to an end and ending on a high. In second place, I've gone for their self-titled record, The Velvet Underground, released in 1969. So, as mentioned before, John Cale left the band in 1968 after Lou Reed effectively sacked him. Like Brian Eno's departure from Roxy Music several years later, The Velvet Underground simply couldn't contain two big egos, and in both cases, the more conventional songwriters, Lou Reed and Brian Ferry, won out against the avant-garde experimentalists, Cale and Eno. In both cases, the band was never the same again, still arty, but not quite as cutting edge. 
Reed was clear he didn't want the band to become one-dimensional, another white light, white heat was to be avoided at all costs. With the recruitment of Doug Yule, the straight-laced kind of guy, at odds with the Velvet's cultivated image of transgression, the band developed a more soothing, minimalist sound with little distortion. MGM, Verve's, MGM, Verve's parent label, had grown ever more sceptical of the Velvet's commercial appeal, and did little to promote the record, and after this record they were dropped. That decision is so far removed from the quality of songcraft on this record, perhaps best illustrated by the opener Candy Says. The song refers to Candy Darling, a transgender woman who was in Andy Warhol's factory set. Sung innocently by Yule is a chillingly beautiful doo-wop song. Like on the first record, an opening ballad is followed by an out-and-out rocker. What goes on is fantastic. It has mesmerising, droning, relentless, rhythmical guitars, with Doug Yule's towering celestial organ playing transcending the track's fairly inconsequential lyrics. On Some Kind of Love, Reed offers a poetic rumination on different kinds of love and sex, set to a repetitive country swagger. Pale Blue Eyes is the album's centrepiece, and perhaps Reed's finest song ahead of Perfect Day. Morrison's laid-back guitar trembles, Doug Yule's organ gently burrs, and Tucker's sparse tambourine provides a tender backing to what is ostensibly a straightforward love song, until the big reveal in the final verse. It was good what we did yesterday, and I'd do it once again. The fact that you are married only proves you're my best friend, but it's truly, truly a sin. Reed's vocals crack as he delivers these lines. Rather than adopting a persona of depravity, he offers a rare moment of genuine bittersweet emotion and remorse. It's also notable that he sees adultery as a sin, rather than the other vices depicted in his songs which are mentioned more dispassionately and without judgement. The album then has a trio of overtly quasi-religious songs. Jesus is even more minimalist with just two guitars, one folky finger-picking and the other wearily bending. Its lyrics are minimalist too. Despite being a secular Jew, Reed writes about the human need to seek a form of salvation that could be represented by Jesus who the narrator pleads to help him find his proper place and help him in his weakness, for he's falling out of grace. Following the confession of sin on Pale Blue Eyes, the song's depiction of a broken man is all the more moving. Side B's opener beginning to see the light is more upbeat. It has choppy acoustic guitars and giddy vocals. It's quite a repetitive tune that plays the Lennon-McCartney trick of optimistic verses and beginning to see the light, with a salty bridge. Here we go again, I thought that you were my friend. The lyrics seemingly represent a religious epiphany. The climax has Reed singing, how does it feel to be loved? Presumably by God. But the line sounds celebratory, sarcastic and desperate at the same time. I'm Set Free is one of the album's most dynamic tracks. It contains an achingly beautiful solo from Sterling Morrison and an effective use of tension and release in the chorus. The lyric, I'm set free, but only to find a new illusion, bleakly concludes Reed's quest for salvation. That's followed by the brief interlude of, of the gently melancholic but good-natured country rock of That's the Story of My Life. The album then completely loses its thematic focus with the penultimate track, The Murder Mystery. 
which bizarrely returns to the most extreme tendencies of their previous work. All members of the band contribute vocals. Morrison and Reed recite spoken word pas passages, while Yule and Tucker provide melodic vocals. The organ on this track is uncharacteristically psychedelic. It's really jarring and out of place on this record, and it was an error of judgement including it. Almost as if the band were keen to prove they hadn't completely abandoned their avant-garde tendencies. The murder mystery is one of those tracks that makes me thankful the skip button exists. The final track is worth skipping to, after hours neatly tips its hat to the, to the album's first track being a soft, intimate song sung by a member of the band with a sweeter voice than Reed's. This time it's Mo Tucker who sings, and it's an endearing, off-key performance in this song that's a, an ode to loneliness. It typifies the album's childlike simplicity and its darker adult themes and rounds off the album really well. Not as well known as the Banana Record, The Velvet Underground is a near masterpiece, spoiled only by the baffling murder mystery. It has a subdued sound and nakedly honest lyric writing, and Reed's intentional track listing also works to great effect, especially on an album heavy with ballads. It's never boring or excessively melancholic. Another fun thing about this record is, like Raw Power by The Stooges, there's two very different mixes of the record. The most commonly known version is Val Valentin's excellent mix, but interestingly Reed produced his own version, commonly known as The Closet Mix. Morrison and Tucker were not enamoured with Reed's production, hence the pejorative label Closet Mix. Reed's vocals are far more prominent, while everything else is much quieter apart from Tucker's percussion. It's an even more intimate affair, and there's a different version of Some Kind of Love which is superior to the album version. There's a whole lineage of, of bedroom indie pop records that owe a debt to this album of quietly revolutionary songwriting genius, and I feel this album deserves to be seen as a classic. But it's always going to be overshadowed by my number one choice, which is, of course, The Velvet Underground and Nico, released in 1967. It remains remarkable to me that such a disparate group of individuals produced an album of such eclecticism, experimentalism and pure excellence that remains a cornerstone of alternative music to this day, and an all-time classic. Recorded in spring 1966, but released nearly a year later, it's a record often perceived as being at odds with the prevalent idealism of the mid-sixties. However, the opening bars of Sunday Morning, in which John Cale twinkles away a nursery rhyme melody on a Celeste, with its vo woozy ver- <laughs> However, the opening bars of Sunday Morning aren't so far away from the mid-sixties pop norms. John Cale twinkles away a nursery rhyme melody on the Celeste and offers woozy viola and, and its dream. Mm. However, the opening bars of Sunday Morning, on which John Cale twinkles away a nursery rhyme melody on the Celeste, along with its woozy viola and lush dream pop melody, it isn't so far away from mid 60s pop norms. Lyrically, however, the song is about the morning after the night before and a paranoid state of mind. After Sunday morning fades elegantly, the brash velocity of I'm waiting for the man pummels the listener with its relentless pounding rhythm. Detailing the narrator's visit uptown to Harlem to meet his drug dealer, the song's lyrics and music are brilliantly evocative of the frantic pace of New York City life, 
and the desperate need to score and take a hit of heroin. The hit leaves him feeling good, until tomorrow, but ominously, that's just another time, when he'll once again be waiting for the man. The song's episodic verses are typical of Reed's style, as are his uneasy sing-speaking vocals, giving his voice so much character and depth. Just as the rhythm appears to be veering off the tracks during the fade-out, the album takes another sonic detour with the dreamy jazz chords of Femme Fatale. Written by Reed at Warhol's request, it's about the factory model Eddie Sedgwick, and it's sung in inelegant but commanding fashion by Nico. Kale takes centre stage on Venus in Furs, an Indian raga-inspired tune dominated by whipping, wailing flashes of Kale's viola. Reed contributes guitar in a bizarre tuning, while Tucker's slow bass drum and tambourine, alongside Morris and snaking bass, really give this song a sinister prowl. Sounding like nothing else before or since, the lyrics are equally groundbreaking, taking inspiration from the novella of the same name by Leopold von Sacher-Massoch. Reed's lyrics concern sadomasochism and domination and submission. The narrator pleads to taste the whip, strike dear mistress and cure his heart. The shifting from first to third person perspective also lends credence to the idea that the narrator is a voyeur, or there's more than just two consenting adults in the room. It's a song that truly befits the name of the band. Free love in the 1960s never sounded darker. The following track, Run Run Run, rumbles along like a New York City subway as Reed returns to describing various drug addicts roaming the streets of NYC. These tales of the underground contrast with the models at Warhol's factory, as presented in All Tomorrow's Parties, sung laconically by Nico, Reed's lyrics seem to at least be partly sarcastic, but there's also an empathy with the crisis of identity the model is experiencing. Like on Venus in Furs, Kale's classical background informs the song's cacophonous droning sound, with its repetitive piano motif twinkling irrhythmically as Reed improvises on detuned guitar. On an album of epic songs, Side 2's opener Heroin is the most epic of all. Based around two chords, Heroin vaults between calming serenity and howling anarchy. Reed's lyrics provide a coldly neutral account of hard drug use, with nihilistic sentiments such as, I'm going to try and nullify my life. Kale's screeching viola and Tucker's unorthodox drumming evoke the nightmarish sensation of heroin use. As such, it's hard to portray it as a pro-drug song, but it notably steers well away from being an anti-heroin song as well. There She Goes Again is safer territory musically, incorporating the riff from Hitchhike by Marvin Gaye. The subject matter is no less gritty. It concerns a promiscuous prostitute who the narrator gleefully goads his friend about, eventually telling him to hit her. While the other songs combine grittiness with streetwise poetry, this track feels a little artless lyrically, but it is a good tune. The final Nico track on the record, Albio Mira, is perhaps the most similar to The Velvet's third album, in that it's a love song with genuine tenderness, in which the narrator begs their self-doubting lover to see them as the narrator sees them, Albio Mira. There's a depth to it not found in the other Nico tracks with their sexist undertones, and it stands in stark but welcome contrast to the depraved subject matters found elsewhere. 
I always feel the album loses its momentum at this point. The Black Angel's death song suffers as the lyrics are free associative, with Reed admitting the idea was to string words together for the sheer fun of their sound, not any particular meaning. In contrast to the character studies and candid themes of the previous songs, it feels like the penultimate track on their third album, The Murder Mystery, in that it feels experimental, but a little too shallow and pretentious to be considered among their finest. European Sun ends the album in bewildering fashion, Starting with a reed guitar rhythm and a sneering set of lyrics, the, fir- the first minute or so is essentially Velvets by Numbers. Then a loud crash is heard, apparently caused by John Cale hitting a stack of plates with a metal chair. The final six minutes are instrumental and improvisational, with plenty of rumbling feedback and distortion. It's hard to argue that the album ends in truly rewarding fashion, But like Sister Ray closing white light, white heat, the Velvet's embrace of chaos was truly transgressive for its time, and there's something thrilling about it. Despite the record partly being manufactured by Warhol's demands and wildly varying from sweet love songs to seedy tales of vice, the Banana album feels like a fully realised debut record, and is a thrillingly bold record lyrically and sonically. What's also remarkable is how the record vividly represents New York life in the 1960s, from the glamorous models of Chelsea to the junkies of the Lower East Side. And also remarkable is the personnel. This is an American-European band at this point, with two very distinctive and different women pivotal to the band's unique sound. It's a sound that incorporates Indian raga, Dylanesque folk, R&B, avant-garde classical music, country and western. While by no means an all-killer, no-filler record, the Banana album is one of the best albums of all time for its sheer originality. That's it for my album rankings, but the Velvets notably recorded material in 1968 and 69 that was left in the archives for a good decade and a half. In 1985, long after Punk had revived interest in the Velvets and their legend had slowly advanced, a selection of unreleased material was remixed and packaged at the 10-track compilation album VU, which after my top two choices is my third favourite Velvet Underground release, containing some of their best rockers such as I Can't Stand It and Foggy Notion, and some of their best atmospheric ballads including Ocean and Stephanie Says. It's a really impressive release, even if the reverb-heavy 80s reproduction does make it feel a little dishonest. A second outtakes compilation, Another View, was released in 1986, but the cream of the crop was taken in the first harvest. VU has all the best outtakes. Apart from an interesting early demo version of Rock and Roll, and two versions of a psychedelic bluesy track called Hey Mr. Rain, it's really for completists only, and some of the tracks are literally just instrumental backing tracks. There's quite a few live albums, and three of the most notable I'll approach in order of recording, but not release. 1969, The Velvet Underground Live is the best of of their live albums. It's a double album featuring altered versions of tracks from their debut to early versions of tracks from Loaded, including a lovely and gentle version of Sweet Jane. Other highlights include extended rave-up versions of What Goes On and White Light, White Heat. And there's also a laid-back country version of Waiting for the Man. The record is, is great and it belies the idea that the Velvets ditched their radicalism when Kale left and when uh, Doug Yule joined. 
In contrast, Live at Max's Kansas City, recorded in 1970, is characterised by a jaded-sounded Blue Reed, a flat crowd, and Billy Yule's boring drumming. It's a useful historical document of the Velvets at the very end of Reed's tenure. You can hear on the record that his decision to leave the band was justified. Finally, there's Live 1993, which is stylized in Roman numerals. This record is a document of the Velvets' short-lived reunion in the early 90s. Reed in particular sounds bored and either mumbles or strains his vocals throughout. There's a new track called Coyote which bizarrely ends the set. There's also a version of I Heard Her Call My Name which works better than the original, there's better separation of the instruments. And Kale sings uh, Nico's songs uh, quite well too. Mainly this rec- with this record though, it, it's really nice to hear the, the appreciation the band get. They get a really huge standing ovation from the audience in recognition of their work, which of course wasn't appreciated in their original incarnation. So it's worth listening just for that, really. And that's all for now. Thank you very much for listening. Um, until next time.